The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. What I'm noticing is this is a little loud. So um, if you look on the top, there are white shift buttons, and the one on the far left says speaker, right? That person, if you lower it, just that sounds good. It was That's great. It was echoing a little too much. Okay, you can start. Thank you. Are we there? Okay. Okay. Great. If it isn't, that's okay, too. <clears throat> so... Um, when I started preparing this talk, what went across the top of the page was being with the me I don't like. Now, as I worked on the talk, I decided that was inappropriate. But I've left it there. It's now being with the mind. But I left it there because that's where I'm working right now. So, you know, do you sometimes wonder how how you can tame the wandering mind. It's running all over the place. It's running away with us, and we're, we, just, we seem to have no control over our minds. Now, if you happen to be somebody like me who tends to live in the mind, that can be a real problem. Life feels very out of control when my mind feels out of control. And so I find myself with the urge to make it stop or to change. Yes? Um, I'm embarrassed to say this, but your earring is falling down to the tip of the microphone. And And that's what's causing the problem? Oh, how awful. (laughs) Okay, well, that earring is history. (laughs) It's like having spinach between your teeth. Well, see, now that doesn't make me feel bad at all. I'm really happy. That you told me I had this head spinach in my teeth. <laughs> so, so one of the things I notice about my mind is it's a mind that makes judgments. It's very critical. The me I don't like part comes right out there when that critical part comes in. And um, the mind that whines, it's not my fault. <laughs> it's not me. The mind that slips into depression Oh, whoa, I can't handle anything. Rarely do we wonder about the mind that seems drunk on joy. We're just so happy to see it, we just say, yay! (laughs) Last week, we talked about the practice of being mindful of feelings, being mindful of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This, of course, relates very directly We explored that the human mind tends to go toward the pleasant and away from the unpleasant. It becomes bored with what's neutral or confused with what's neutral. And sometimes the mind rests there. We talked about the practice being a way to notice patterns of behavior. Patterns of behavior. So... Noticing the habits we typically engage in when we, rec- when we encounter pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. What happens in the mind? The third foundation of mindfulness is, in fact, mindfulness of the mind. 
So today we're going to look at that, and we're going to try to think about thinking in a way that doesn't make the whole practice a self-improvement project. It is not a self-improvement project. Mindfulness of mind is about seeing, just seeing, noticing what's true about what the mind is doing, noticing what's true about our thoughts. It isn't about changing them. As soon as we start about changing them, we're back into pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and I like this, I don't like this, I want to change what I don't like and keep what I do like. All we're talking about is just what's happening. So, so one of the questions is, how do we become free of our thinking without making it a self-improvement project? <laughs> right? Because hidden in that is a certain amount of self-judgment, wanting things to be different than they are, and there's a certain amount of skillful intention. I really want to be free of being ruled by things over which I'm not in control. I want to be free of the suffering inherent in watching my mind follow its usual patterns and being caught up in something that I had no intention of happening. So the instruction is really simple, as it turns out. Here's the entire instruction. Actually, not quite entire I'm going to skip the part that have to do primarily with meditation. And how, monks, does he in regard to the mind abide contemplating the mind? Here he knows a lustful mind to be lustful, and a mind without lust to be without lust. He knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger to be without anger. He knows a deluded mind to be deluded and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. In this way, in regard to the mind, he abides contemplating the mind internally, externally, internally and externally. He abides contemplating the nature of arising, of passing away, of both arising and passing away in regard to the mind. Mindfulness that there is a mind is established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness, and he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how, in regard to the mind, he abides contemplating the mind. All it says is, we know what our mind is doing, that we're aware of how the mind is moving, that we're aware that we're thinking. It's not about the content of those thoughts, only that we know something about the quality of the thinking. The quality of the thinking has to do with things like greed, hatred, and delusion. Lust, greed, anger, hatred, ill will, confusion, pretty much stands on its own. There is the fever of lust. There's an energy associated with wanting. 
There is a tension with anger that the stretching, the tightness, when there's ill will in the mind, how does it feel to be thinking angry thoughts? Not what are you angry about. Not what gave rise to it. What is the quality of your mind when you're thinking angry thoughts? In general, these are, ki- are considered ethical quanti- qualities. Ethical qualities. So there's a distinction made between wholesome and unwholesome, skillful or unskillful. It isn't a matter of judgment about whether those thoughts are good or bad, but only what is the quality of those thoughts. It's like the colors red and blue, not whether you like red and blue or brown or any other color. Just what is it that is there? When we see ourselves in a place of irritation, what happens? So because this was on my mind, today I was driving, and it turns out I've sort of decided in my life that I'm going to do less driving, that I don't want the rest of my life to be about driving. And because I live up in the hinterlands, this can be a challenge. So it turns out that over the last week, I have driven between three and six hours every day for for 10 days. This is the person who's decided she, her life is not going to be about driving. It's an accident of how things have occurred, but there it is. And so I noticed that my hip started aching, and I'm thinking, oh, man, what's that about? You know, I'm back to too much time in the car. Right? So this morning when I was driving and thinking about this, and I was driving 280 at 10 miles an hour, and we were stopping and going and stopping and going, and... I noticed the tension in my mind, and it was tight, and it was stretched, and I, it, it was not pleasant. And I thought, well, let me check in with my body, because I'm used to checking in with my body when I drive, because it's a source of great learning for me. And lo and behold, I discovered that I was pressing with the ball of my left foot against the back of the car, embracing myself, bracing against the car, And I could feel it from the ball of my foot up to my hip. And I said, oh, (laughs) oh, that's why my hip hurts. Because of the tension in my mind, I am doing this thing with my body to brace myself that's causing some pain that stays with me long after I'm no longer experiencing the tension of driving. And I said, well, that's, that's really interesting. Now... Had I discovered that before, I could have been more mindful of releasing the tension in my leg, (laughs) which then, after I noticed that, it didn't mean that that pushing against the car went away. It just meant that I caught it faster and I could stop pushing with my left foot, which had no function in driving at all. And I said, well, that's interesting. Now, is that a leftover from when I used to drive a, a stick shift and I was thinking of slamming on, the, on the, the gear? I don't know. All I know is that was happening as a process when my mind was tense. And I had been totally unaware of it. So... One of the things that we do, one of the, one of the real tasks in 
mindfulness of mind is to look at the thoughts independent of us. So the tension in my mind was causing me to push with my leg, but didn't actually... It, it, I wasn't deciding to push my left foot into the car. It was happening. And it was a, a process of the mind reacting to the tension. The mind, the mind was experiencing tension, and then the body did something. But I was not conscious of any of that. And th- this is kind of a, a characteristic of mental objects, that they are, in fact, objects. They're not us. Thoughts come up. We watch them arise and pass away. And they, are, they just do that all the time. And they do that in such rapid succession that we don't even notice it. But we can notice the quality of those thoughts. We can notice whether the overwhelming quality of the mind is tense, anxious, open, spacious, contracted. We can notice this. We can notice whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And by noticing this, we notice what happens next. Because we are kind of hardwired to like what's pleasant and not like what's unpleasant, we tend to to, um, look at, at certain thoughts better than others, and we hold them more easily. So if our thinking is open and spacious and joyous... We're quite willing to hang out there. That feels just fine, thank you. But when they're tight and contracted and snarly, we don't really want to hang out there. It's easier to judge that as undesirable and want to do something about that. We're not really hanging out with those thoughts. But what mindfulness of the mind instructs us to do is to know that that's where we are without having to change it. Without, without saying, this has to be different than it is. So, Sayada Utejaniya, which everybody who's been listening to Andrea has heard of, <laughs> whom everyone has heard of, says you have to watch both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. You have to watch both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. Note the truth of how things are. These changes between happy and sad are the nature of being alive. Being alive, we have both happy and sad things happen. Anything can happen anytime. It is a myth that we can control our thoughts. We don't. Things arise, they pass away. I noticed, uh, I looked at some notes I had taken on my last long retreat, a month-long retreat, and one line in it um, said, uh, I need to become more friendly with my own room. Now, this actually had to do with where I was meditating. However, it struck me when I read it last that, that I need to become more friendly with my own room, with the room of my mind. I have to be willing to hang out with whatever the thoughts are, to be friendly toward them, to allow them to be whatever they are. Now, 
that doesn't mean that I never choose something skillful or unskillful. But it does mean that I don't reject myself. I don't reject how things are because I don't like what the thinking is. So I'm going to give you... uh, I'm going to talk about uh, an example, an analogy, that will allow us to look at how we're looking at thinking. Because this can seem very abstract. So I want to try to make it a little less abstract. So so my car is eight years old, and it has 160,000 miles on it. And I, I have a really nice car. And it's very comfortable, and I like it. But things are starting to go wrong with it, and it's very expensive to fix. But in a burst of optimism, I have just put new tires on my car, so I I am determined to continue driving this car because I probably can't afford one as nice as this. But what this knowledge has done is it's gotten me to start thinking about cars. Okay, this can be very dangerous to think about cars. So... um, so we can look at the movement amount around uh, it, the movement of my mind around looking at cars. Okay, so <clears throat> the first obvious one is the opening to lust. Oh, I want that car. That car is perfect. Ooh, it looks good, you know. And I can, I I have judgments around the virtue or non-virtue of the car. I would like my next car to be an electric car someone who lives far away and uses a lot of gas. I've, I experience a certain amount of guilt about driving my car. So, so I notice my mind revolving around guilt, around virtue, and I'll trade off this is virtuous against that is not virtuous, and I, I see my mind comparing. Now, this is comparing how I feel about my thoughts, there is a relationship to my thoughts. So when I notice, ooh, I want that car, then, then I'll say, oh, that's lust. And I'll say, no, no, that I'm uncomfortable with that. So I don't want to allow the fact in that I really am liking that car. Oh, no, this is, in the, that, this is probably my, uh, my Catholic upbringing, where I can jump into guilt for things like that really quickly, right? doesn't matter where it comes from. To notice guilt, notice judgment around looks, driving pleasure, safety, all the commercial features that you hear about. Money. What does money do to you? As soon as you say the word money, what happens in your mind? Is there anxiety? Is there ease? Is there, I don't care? Is there fear? What does the word money conjure up? Is there guilt? Money, I don't like money. <laughs> I just don't, I don't like thinking about it. Uh, my mind just kind of crackles. It's sort of like I, I was a scientist. I made my living as a scientist, but I was a terrible mathematician. <laughs> it's 
One of my terrible downfalls was I was a terrible mathematician. I just can't seem to add and subtract. I mean, it's not the, not the difficult concepts. It's just I don't have time for that. My mind doesn't want to do that. So, uh, so when I think about money, there's economic analysis. Does this make sense? You know, would, if I sold this car and bought this car, would I save money on this? And it makes my head hurt. I don't want to think about it. So I notice my mind saying, no, I don't want to think about it. Ah, pushing away lots of aversion to the subject of money. Lots of aversion. I'm not asking myself, why am I having this aversion? Just looking at it, aversion to the subject. I'm not averse to money, you understand. I'm just averse to thinking about it. I would never drive a station wagon. I don't even know if they still make station wagons. But I grew up in a family that always drove station wagons. And I have a real bias against station wagons. Now, fortunately, this is not of great social import. And I don't have to feel guilty about not wanting to drive a station wagon. But whatever it is, I would never drive one of those. That looks like, you know, I would never drive that. Watching... Watching vanity arise. Ooh. Ah, I see that. How do I balance all these conflicting skillful and unskillful ideas? They're just thoughts. They come up, they go away. A better question is, why do I care if I'm not in the market for a car? (laughs) I'm not going to buy a car now. And so then what I notice is, here's my mind going through all of these gymnastics over something that I actually don't care about. This is my mind being lost in fantasy, caught up in a fantasy. I don't even need to be having these thoughts. But I can get pretty roiled up if I don't pay attention to what's happening. If I don't notice these thoughts are just coming up, that I'll see a car on the road as I'm driving, and I'll say, ooh, that's a nice car. And then all of these, all of these possibilities for where the thoughts go can arise. What is useful is to notice where they go. Do they go to critical? Do they go to fantasy? What is the movement of my mind in response to something I see that I like or I don't like, that is pleasant or unpleasant? What is the movement of my mind? Where does it go? That's what mindfulness of mind is. So that we can come to see what these these patterns are. So what are the things to notice? We can notice the changing nature of thoughts, what begins in one place doesn't stay there. It soon becomes something else. Um, There is, in fact, a certain amount of stress in my life right now. And so I, um, I was having a conversation with my husband because he said, I want to talk about something with you. And I sat down, gave him my full attention. I'm listening, I'm listening, and pretty soon my mind was gone. 
And I realized I was not paying attention to the discussion, which, by the way, was about money, which I didn't want to think about, but okay. Fortunately, my husband does think about this, and you know, all he requires is that I hear him out <laughs> and help him make decisions. So I'm listening, and, and I realized I'm giving him my attention, but I'm actually not following My mind is not following what he's saying. And so I renewed my effort to pay attention. And my mind was hurting. I felt felt a tension and a squeezing. And I said, you know, I really want to hear this, but I can't hear this now. And so I told him that. And he got a distressed look on his face. And I said, is this a long-term conversation or a short-term conversation we're having? And he said, well, it's a long-term. I said, then we can't have it now. (laughs) If it doesn't require a decision now, we can't have this conversation because I can't make my mind go there. No, my mind was just total resistance. And in that resistance, the next thing I noticed was it got sad because I really wanted to give my attention. So I, I was judgmental. I, I, I was critical of my inability to stay with the conversation. I was fearful. Maybe my mind just isn't capable anymore. There were, it moved a lot. It moved a lot of places. And any one of those places could have been a hook. One of the places it moved was self-pity. Why is he doing this? I can't deal with this now. And as soon as I felt that, I popped out of it and said, okay, okay, now we're getting really carried away. I noticed my mind had, been, had moved to whining. <laughs> whining. So I just told him. We ended the conversation. He didn't really need a decision from me at that point. That was good, because as it turns out, I couldn't make a good decision. <laughs> But the tension that was there and the the suffering around the roiling mind dissipated. What remained is uh, my mind, I I had in my mind a sense of uh, inadequacy. No, I should have been able to just carry on. That I'm not perfect syndrome that I have worried about, and I noticed that. And then I noticed that, oh, it's that again. And once I named it, it kind of lost its power. Oh, it's just that, you know, because I know, you know, I I don't know many perfect people. So I don't actually require myself to be perfect anymore. But my mind still goes there. My mind still goes there. So I can just see that. And the habit of seeing that allowed me to just take a breath. Just take a breath. So we focus on how we're relating to what arises in the mind. How we're relating to it. I like it, I don't like it, I push it away, I welcome it in. And what we're trying to do with mindfulness of mind is welcome whatever is there. The tension and unhappiness around not wanting to talk about money allowed me to actually say something to my husband that kept it from becoming a fight. 
I can think of many ways it could have ended up in a very unpleasant conversation. I could have gone to that place of self-pity and say, how could you be doing to this, this to me now? You know that I need to be doing this. And, you know, would have been easy, actually. That, that movement of the mind can happen. It doesn't have anything to do with, I didn't want to fight with him. But my mind could definitely go there. So see what's happening. Watch how the mind pushes. Watch how the mind moves so that you know, that you recognize, oh, yeah, I've seen that. I know what that's like. So, so one of the long-term mind habits that I have is that I, I react very poorly to criticism. So <clears throat> I tend to be a fairly critical person. I, I notice my mind go to critical. But my mind also goes to forgiveness and compassion pretty much equally. So in my mind, criticism and forgiveness or compassion, you know, pretty much coexist. And so I expect you to be the same way. So if you're critical of me, and you don't also offer the forgiveness and compassion, I get really confused, and my mind gets twisted and sad. And, and, and so I have a habit around criticism, because I've noticed that not everybody does this, hmm? of cringing, waiting for them to come back with the next thing. This is a habit of my mind. It isn't because the person who has criticized me is going to do anything other than criticize me. But because in the past it's happened differently, my mind goes, ooh, embraces itself against what comes as a consequence of criticism. So I've watched my mind do that. So now I know that's, that's, that's the habit pattern. It doesn't mean it never happens anymore, but I see it, and I can stop cringing. I haven't stopped the criticism leads to, but I do stop the reaction to that, because I say, oh, it's just that again. Whatever I'm being criticized for is no worse than, you know, it just was. So if somebody says something to me I've, that, that is unjust, that I think is an unjust criticism, like, I don't know. I already heard you say that. I can become defensive, or I can just say, oh, well, they already heard me say that. I don't, I don't have to be defensive, but I can feel my mind move that way. I can feel the defensiveness arise. The the thought arises of defense. It's just a thought. (laughs) Okay. I actually don't have to defend myself against everything. I actually don't have to defend myself against most things, but the movement of my mind goes there. So, So one question to ask yourself when you notice something is, how am I with this? How am I with this? How do I feel about this? Just that asking the question kind of breaks the movement, you know, sort of slows down the automatic response. But how am I with this? How do I feel about this? It's kind of a variation on that, is this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral question. So how am I with this? 
And when whatever the thought is leaves, notice it's leaving. You know, if I notice that I'm being critical, I can kind of get hung up on that critical thing. And I don't always notice that it's, I'm no longer criticizing whatever it is. Notice when the thought leaves. Oh, well, that was quick. That automatic response can be very quick. You don't have to hold on to it. You can just see it. So one of the things that happens as we look at our minds is we notice that certain things happen over and over again. And sometimes we notice that things happen not because of what's going on now. The mind has, is triggered by a memory. So if we go back to the car thing, when I was young and in my 20s, I drove a little convertible sports car. This was really, it was an MGB. This is what I drove. And I was so attached to that car. That car had a name. I loved that car. And my memory of that car is when I drove it, I was on top of the world. I had, I was in control of everything. I felt free. It was a, a source of great pleasure for me. And I have a memory of how that felt to drive that little sports car. And what comes right after that memory is, well, I'm not that way anymore. There's a kind of a, a feeling of cynicism that arises. I noticed that. And there's, there's a kind of... So the memory has suddenly come, become something that's a little more uncertain and a little fearful. You know, I'm getting old. I think about old age. You know, I, I, I could never drive that car now. Oh... And there's a feeling of unpleasant. And then I think, ah, but actually, I'm wiser now. <clears throat> One reason I wouldn't drive that car is that, you know, it was, it was actually pretty dangerous the way I drove that car. <laughs> I would never drive a car that way now. That there's a certain wisdom that has arisen. Okay, so now there's, it's a little more pleasant. And I'm, I'm noticing a different feeling about that. That the memory can just be the memory. It isn't actually about my freedom. It's just a pleasant memory. And it doesn't have to lead to all this other stuff. It doesn't have to lead to confusion about how I'm feeling now. It can. But if I'm watching those thoughts popping up and down, then I can just see they're not me, they're just thoughts. They're just thoughts. Now, if I stayed with the pleasant thought of the convertible... I could go through all kinds of fantasies around when I was driving that car and what I was doing in that car and who else was in that car and where I went with that car. I could be lost for really a long time. And sometimes what we notice about our minds is that there's a well-worn track toward fantasy. Oh, that was a pleasant memory. I'm going to hold on to that pleasant memory and ride that car in that pleasant memory. There's nothing wrong with this. You just need to know it's happening. Just notice it's happening. I'm going to ride this car for a while. Oh, that was fun. I'm on a nostalgia trip now. 
okay, that's what's happening. As long as I know what's happening, it's not a bad thing. It just is. But if I'm living there and everything else is unpleasant by comparison, then what I'm really doing is pushing everything else away. Okay, that's what's happening. I'm pushing away this unpleasant thing by thinking about how much fun it was to drive that car. And I'm forgetting about all the mechanical problems I had because that's not part of my fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) So we notice whether there's a mood associated with our thoughts. You know, what's the prevailing mood? How does it feel? Oh... I heard a talk by Heather Martin one time who was talking on this subject, and she said, one of the important things to remember about thoughts is that you can put a period at the end of them. You don't have to carry them around. You don't have to continue them on. You don't have to make them about anything. You don't have to ascribe meaning to your thoughts. Just put a period at the end. That was that thought. So we begin to notice habits. We identify them. We think of them as skillful or unskillful. I mean, after all, there's some things that you develop that are quite skillful. I'm very happy that even when I'm critical of someone, the compassion and the forgiveness come up. I'm really happy about that. And I want to notice that when it happens. Because every time I notice it, it's reinforced. So I said this was not a self-improvement project, and in fact, it's not a self-improvement project. But I find myself making choices based on what I see my mind doing and how some of those things create pain and some of them do not. Okay. I can see that now. I can see how that habit of mine causes me suffering. Hmm. I just might choose something different. And one of the things I might choose is not continuing that mode. So if you have an agitated mind and you're angry, you can't just say, okay, I'm going to stop being angry. Usually doesn't work that way. But you can stop telling the story that feeds the anger You could say, ooh, anger, this is a dangerous place. I recognize this. This is a dangerous place. I'm kind of afraid of this. And I feel a lot of judgment around that. So now what I'm doing is I'm asking what else is here besides the anger. And by looking at what else is here, the anger doesn't become the focus. It's there. But maybe why am I angry? So, for example, in the conversation about money with my husband, what I finally realized was that I was really stressed. It wasn't that I didn't really, I mean, I didn't want to talk about money, but that wasn't what was driving the problem. It was realizing that there was stress, and I had to acknowledge, accept that there was stress. And I had to do whatever was true for that, for that being true. I couldn't pretend that wasn't true. So to quote Uteshaniya again, he said, don't feel disturbed by the thinking mind. You're not trying to stop 
the thinking mind. You're not practicing to prevent thinking, but rather to recognize and acknowledge thinking whenever it arises. That's true in meditation. It's true in your daily life. You're not practicing to prevent thinking, but rather to recognize and acknowledge thinking whenever it arises. So, let me read you this. Some thoughts trace an outline of existence. Some curl around a deposit of sand, a pearl of wisdom shining through confusion. Some days, the shallow gray seems to sift in without warning after a warm morning, leaving me with a sense of loss, even betrayal. But it is only my effort to shape pattern in the absence of one that is responsible. Simply, the summer fog has descended, the usual suspect, and I'm wanting it to be different again. Read that again. Some thoughts trace an outline of experience. Some curl around a deposit of sand, a pearl of wisdom shining through confusion. Some days, the shallow gray seems to shift in without warning after a warm morning, leaving me with a sense of loss, even betrayal. But it is only my effort to shape pattern in the absence of one that is responsible. Simply, the summer fog has descended, the usual suspect, and I'm wanting it to be different again. So those are my thoughts. Thank you. Are there any comments, questions, observations? Um, In the conversation with your husband, Mm -hmm. I have two questions. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of calling a halt to the conversation, might you have told him about your aversive feelings around money and what would have happened if, that, if you'd done that. And second one is, what if you'd said, I need to go meditate on my aversive feelings about money for half an hour and then I'll come back and talk with you? <laughs> well, both of those are, are uh, potential uh, things I could have done. He's quite aware of my aversion to money. <laughs> we have these conversations I'm not surprised periodically. <laughs> so, um, so, so that wasn't necessary because that's, that's certainly where. Now, on the other hand, uh, what I chose to do afterward was to go meditate. And once I realized how buzzy my mind was, I went off and meditated for a few minutes just to clear the mind. But I had established that this was not something that happened to me that needed to happen on the day that I was really stressed, too many things going on. And so I got his agreement that it didn't need to happen yesterday or the day before or whatever day it was. So, so that's what we did. But in fact, when I'm feeling a lot of confusion in my mind like that and there's a lot of competing desires and... Mm, the 
thoughts covered a lot of territory. And what I did was sit down and kind of let those thoughts dissipate. I didn't push them away. I wasn't meditating instead of those thoughts. It was more that I sat down and just said, if I say that right now this is what I'm going to do, then my mind can take a breather. It doesn't have to solve anything. Because that's a habit of my mind, which is everything has to be solved. I have to do something about this. So by saying, right now, I'm not going to do anything about this, though the objects of my thoughts became less real. And they, they became what they were, which was just random, this is up, this is down. And I have one other thought for you, and that is you should look at a plug-in hybrid because you... <laughs> <laughs> Because of your long drives. This is true. Well, there is one car. There is one car that I could drive down here and back with. But I can't afford it. (laughs) Right behind you, there was somebody who had a comment. Uh, I had a question about interpreting some of what you were talking about there, being aware uh, of the uh, mood behind what you're thinking and a lot of times uh, I'm thinking rehearsals of uh, dealing with some uh, situation, you know, talking to a neighbor about a noise problem or connecting with somebody I hadn't talked to for years. Uh, and I'm rehearsing that. The anxiety that prompted is getting masked by this feeling, pleasant feeling of my Rehearsals, because I generally win when there's a in your rehearsal in my rehearsal, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, where do I put my attention? I mean, the immediate thing is the winning. Do I try to get back? I mean, by the time I realize that I'm off in this fantasy, um, I'm winning, Mm -hmm. and that's pleasant, and that's the mood at the time. Do I? try to go back and recover the uh, anxiety that drove it, or is that actually counterproductive? Well, um, I never go looking for trouble. So I, don't, I would not try to uh, recall the anxiety. I suspect the anxiety will come back on its own once you, once you see what you're doing, which is creating a fantasy about an outcome. So when you see that, when you notice, okay, that was great, but that's just how I want it to be. And you recognize the, uh, essentially the delusion of projecting the answer. So you see that. Then you can say, that's a possible outcome. That's a possible outcome. What other possible outcomes are there? What else is here? So one of the things you might notice is here in that situation is that you're pushing away the unpleasantness of the actual conversation. Or you're pushing away uh, uh, or no, another possibility is that in your fantasy you are um, uh, in the act of winning, it's a one-sided winning. It felt like a one-sided winning to the, the, the issue, which is 
you got some and the other guy got nothing, right? Noticing the, the, the grasping onto part. Oh, yeah, I really, that's the outcome I want, all right. Yep, that's the outcome I want. And see the movement of the mind doing that. And then maybe you can hold it with a little more open hand when you see that. You can say, okay, I can see I'm grasping there. All right, it's a possible solution. That's one thing. I'm not going to hold to it as a safety place. And maybe I notice that I feel safer with my answer. So, so that's the experience around it. In the, in the actual talking to the neighbor, you're not going to be able to do all that. So it's kind of useful, actually, to do that beforehand. You know, to sort of, okay, what are the other, what are the possible, what are the other possible outcomes here? And how do I feel about those? So you don't have to bring the anxiety back. It, it's, you know, it'll arise on its own if it feels like it, if, the, if that's what the situation is, is calling for. But, but your approach is, is just to see what's going on. See what your mind is doing. Does that help? Good. Anyone over here? Yeah. Okay. Is it um, the light it's on. I can hear it. There we go. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, I think a lot, of course, like everybody does. Um, and yet, in meditating or when I'm noticing that I'm thinking, I'm one of those people where it all just disappears as soon as I start noticing it. Uh-huh. And so I notice that. And... Um, the question I've been having is whether to work more at trying to notice my thoughts while they're happening. I mean, work more. I don't want to work at anything. But to be more with that experience so I can be more aware of my unconscious thoughts that uh-huh. are there running me rather than just disappearing. So, I mean, I'm not disappearing, but... <laughs> no, no. But so thoughts- it's just a question about meditating and practice that I've had. I think it happened, uh, when that happens with me, uh, what I do is I ask myself, what's the residual feeling I have from the thoughts? So that I'm not, so it's kind of an indirect question. Um, Am I feeling at ease? Am I feeling tight? Am I feeling open? So, So sometimes in meditation, what is happening it, we're following our breath, and we recognize that we've gone off in thought. And then we say, okay, I'm going to look at my thoughts, but we've changed. Something else is happening now. We're actually here. <laughs> we're not off in thought. So, okay, I'm here. So then you notice, oh, I missed that. Notice your mind wanting to figure it out. Notice your mind wanting to watch the thoughts. Because that's, that's what you're doing. Your mindfulness, you're mindful of those thoughts. That's what's happening now, not what used to be happening. Mm-hmm. So part of it is that we're, when we're, we first start trying to notice and be mindful of thoughts is we end up chasing the thought. That's what I don't want to do. I actually don't do that because that is silly. That is really silly. (laughs) Then I'm just thinking about thinking. Yeah, yeah. So so the question was just whether, just I mean, what you're saying is really 
make, it resonates. And yeah. It's just to yeah. be with what is and, just and to, be just with what it. Is. Yeah. yeah. It, it, we don't actually stop thinking. We, we don't stop thinking. Think, thinking is happening all the time. So, so we, can, we can notice that we're thinking. So when you're thinking about thinking, notice that you're thinking about thinking. And, that, and that's the other related piece, which is it, it's really easy in watching thoughts to get lost in the process of thinking about thinking. Yes. And, and um, I don't... Yeah. That, that, that's not... So, so then the only place that it ends up, it, again, really is back in emptiness. For me, yeah. because if I'm not thinking about thinking and I'm not thinking... <laughs> Well, that I'm just being. Here, but that's not where your attention is. Right. Okay. Exactly. So, for some people, paying a lot of attention to their thoughts, being aware of their thoughts, is very important. For other people, it's not a very useful. It's not skillful in what is necessary for your own awareness. Okay. So. What we've been talking about are the four foundations of mindfulness. So the first one is mindfulness of body. The second one is mindfulness of Vedana, feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The third is mindfulness of mind. The fourth is mindfulness of dhammas. So that's all the hindrances and the factors of awakening and so on. So all of those are useful foundations of mindfulness. And they reinforce one another. If being mindful of the mind, being mindful of thinking in particular, is not useful for you right now, don't fight it. It's not useful for you if now. It's not if it's not what's happening and that's, right. that's pulling the attention, yeah. just be with what, where the attention's getting pulled. Yes, yeah. be with where the attention is being pulled. You might also. Um, Ask yourself occasionally when you're not sitting, what's happening? That's when a lot of the thinking's happening. <laughs> yeah. So what's happening? What's or happening? When, if I notice strong feeling, then what, what's the thought behind that? Yeah. Just what's happening? So it doesn't even have to have an answer. This is really important. It doesn't have to have an answer. Just what's happening? Because it pulls your awareness into it. And eventually, I suspect, something's going to really grab your attention and you're going to go, oh, oh, I see, I see that. Mm -hmm. But there is no virtue in trying to see it. There is only grace in seeing. Totally different. Okay? Thank you. You're welcome. So, thank you all very much.